Would you please remain standing for the reading of God's word? I gotta say, these are lovely lilies up here, and they smell even better than they look, I think. So thank you all those who purchased lilies for the Memorial Garden. I better tell you now before I forget, but if you did, pick them up today if you would on your way out. All right. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, turn with us to Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to read verses 1 through 23. Matthew chapter 13, beginning verse 1, the Holy Scriptures read, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and he sowed. Some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seed, though, fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them out. Other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then the disciples came to Jesus and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he who has will have an abundance, but the one who has not... Even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak them in parables. Because then seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and for your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. And this is the explanation of the parable now. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes along and snatches it away. What has been sown in his heart? This is what was sown all along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and in another thirty. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning as we begin? Father, we ask that we would understand this parable that we would have ears that hear and eyes that see by faith. So, Father, help us not to be hard-hearted. Help us not to hear your word and to reject it, or to hear it and only partly let it seep down into the soils of our heart. 
And also, Father, we ask that we would also not have a divided heart, which is full of both the word and thorns and thistles. So, Father, we know it is only the fourth soil that proves to bear fruit and bring everlasting life. So help us to see with spiritual eyes more deeply than before, or maybe for some here even for the first time, that they too might experience the resurrection from the dead. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to restoring a barren wasteland, where do you start? By planting one seed at a time. And that's just what one man did for over 40 years of his life. Growing up near a small rural town in India, see if I can get the name right, Jadav Paying was disheartened when he saw his small island suffering from erosion and deforestation. This was an island that meant an awful lot to him. In fact, as a kid, he grew up going to it and spending his afternoons playing in the forest and enjoying its luxuries. And so when he saw it slowly die and become a barren wasteland, it saddened him to the point where he determined to do something about it, and something he did do about it. For at the age of 16, Peyang decided to plant at least one tree a day for the rest of his life. At first, his task was quite difficult because he had a hard time even getting seed necessary to plant the trees because you've got to plant seed to get the trees to grow. And he was having a hard time finding seeds at all. But nevertheless, he persevered on, he found seeds, and he planted them, and he kept to his commitment of planting at least one seed a day for the rest of his life. However, not every seed he planted flourished, but nevertheless, he still continued on, planting away, slowly but surely. Eventually, though, the process did become easier because as the trees he planted grew, they began to produce seeds of their own, and those would naturally produce on their own, and he could collect those and plant them and water them himself. And so the forest began to grow, surely but slowly. And so then finally, after 40 long years, Peyang's labors of planting over 1.5 million trees. I had to think about that one for a while. I'm like, is that even possible? Well, it is over 40 years, I guess. Led to the forest finally growing and being restored. And after it had been restored, evidently, a herd of elephants heard about it, pun intended. <laughs> yeah, it's cringe. Which is pretty remarkable thing considering what it was before and what it turned into. They're so cute. And if you don't think so, you're a monster. All right. Now, how is all this made possible? Because of one man's commitment to faithfully labor in planting seed that would eventually lead to flourishing life, abundant life, reproducing life. And so with this in mind, we look to Matthew chapter 13, where we find a mission by one man that is of so much greater importance than merely cultivating trees that track some cute little elephants. So much more important. For it is a mission that is cultivating not trees, but souls for eternity. Souls for eternity. And that mission is whose? It's Jesus Christ. That was his mission, to cultivate souls for eternity. Christ saw this world, and what did he think? Well, like paying, he was disheartened. He cared very much about this world. In fact, as we know, 
It was a world that he made. So he was very much attached to it. And so when he saw this world that he cared so much for dying and becoming a spiritually barren wasteland, he too decided he was going to do something about it. And so he did. And what was that thing that he did? He came to our world in order to save it. Not just to fix it, not to just give us moral advice so we could, you know, kind of, you know, have a little bit better lives, you know, have better relationships, maybe, you know, live a little bit more morally. No, he came to heal it fully. Not at the age of 16, but he came as the babe born in Bethlehem, who, as we discussed this past Good Friday, was born to die. Why? So that we might live. So that we might receive glorious, life-giving resurrection, just as he did. And yet, though Christ has planted, or we might say, we might say sown resurrection seed, abundantly, like with paying, not every one of those seeds is going to take root, is it? No, in fact, as Matthew tells us in this passage, most of the seeds sown, three out of the four, will not produce this everlasting life. Not three of them will not germinate into that resurrection life that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. As our passage this morning shows us, most will not sprout into eternal life at all, but into eternal death. And so in Matthew 13, these verses we just read, verses 1 through 23, Jesus warns us. He warns us to be sure that we have this resurrected life. He warns us how? By way of the parable. By way of the parable about the seed and the soils. Because, here's the thing, only one of those soils leads to resurrecting life. And so if we're going to be the right kind of soil, the kind of soil that comes to participate and experience this resurrecting life, we need to understand how this life comes. And it comes three ways. And here they are. Resurrected life, we can advance a slide there. Resurrecting life comes through understanding, through allegiance, and finally, through death. Now, in this passage, we, this is called a parable. A parable what? What's a parable? It's an earthly story with what? Talk to me, who those who listened in Sunday school. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Okay, two of you paid attention. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And while this is certainly true on one level, it's actually a whole lot more than that. It's actually an earthly story we find out here from Jesus. It's an earthly story with both a heavenly and earthly meaning and It is an earthly story meant to hide and reveal that heavenly meaning. Hide and reveal? What is is that all about? Why would Jesus want to hide what he's saying from anybody? That doesn't seem like a great way to communicate. What's going on here? Why would he do that? Well, that's a really good question, and I'm glad you asked it, because it's the very same question that the disciples ask in verses 10 through 17. That's their question. Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you you talking in parables? This isn't how you normally teach. What's going on here? Now, we can't jump super super deeply into this if any of us want to actually devour Easter ham today. So we're going to have to do a super simplified version of this. So here it is. If you've been with us for our study for this past year and a half through the book of Matthew, then you know what happened in chapter 12. You know in chapter 12, it ends with a major shift in Jesus' ministry. He stops teaching them directly. He moves then to teaching in parables. Why? Well, because in 
chapter 12, the people rejected their king. They said, nope, we're not going to have that. They attributed to Jesus his miracles, his great works, and his teaching. They said, that's of the devil. That's not of God. It was the impartable sin. And so there was a major shift here that happened. Though Jesus preached as no other, healed as no other, and loved and lived as no other man has ever done nor could do, what did they conclude about him? He's of Satan. He's not of God at all. Boy, were they wrong. They were dead wrong. For Jesus is none other than God made flesh. He is Emmanuel. And so they outright rejected Jesus as their messianic king. He came, he offered them as the king, he offered them the kingdom. They reject it, and he's like, okay, we're shifting gears here. We're going with parables. We're going to have the church age. It's going to be a totally different system now because you rejected. All right, that's what happened. So they outright rejected Jesus as their messianic king in the face of overwhelming evidence and proof. And if ever anything was ever proven to a people, this certainly was it. I mean, my goodness, he healed the sick. He cast out demons. He even raised people from the dead. And all of that still was not enough proof for them. And so because they outright rejected him in the face of such overwhelming proof and evidence, the ministry shifts and he begins to speak to them in parables, or you might say riddles, right? That's really what they kind of are. It's like, it's a mix of wisdom literature with riddles. That's kind of what a parable is. And the reason because of what Jesus says in verse 13, look with me at this. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. What do they not see? What do they not understand? Why do they not see? Why do they not understand? Well, the parable tells us exactly why. The reason was because of one thing. It wasn't the condition of the seeds that were sown. They were all good seeds. It was the condition of the hearts upon which those seeds landed. That was the difference. It was totally different. And so because of the condition of their hearts, many rejected. And speaking of that condition, let's look at this first one. Look at verses 3 through 4 with me. And Jesus told them many things, saying in parables, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and birds came and devoured them. All right, so that's the first soil. Okay, so this is kind of broken up, right? We have the teaching in the parable. Then we have the part in the middle where he's like, you don't hear. That's why. This is why I'm doing it. And then you have the part where it's like, here's the explanation. So I'm going to put these side by side so we can, we're going to be jumping back and forth. So follow this. Here's what he says. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, that's the devil, comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. All right, so the gospel message of Jesus is the seed. We got that? That's what the seed is. It's not a literal seed. It's, just, it's, the gospel, it's the kingdom gospel message that he came and preached and proclaimed to the people. And he's explaining why so many people reject it. I mean, you think about it. Jesus the king came, offered the kingdom, and it's like, well, why did the people reject him if he is the king? How does that make sense? Well, Jesus is telling us exactly why. Because the condition of their hearts was not ready for that seed. And so Jesus sows out the seed, which is simply a metaphor for him calling people to find what in him? Healing. Not just physical healing. That's coming for everyone who does, certainly. Okay? That's coming in the life to come. But to find total and complete healing, not just to get sins covered, which is certainly part of that healing, but to experience full healing from the curse of sin. 
And that's really what Christianity's message is all about. Jesus comes then to bring us into his kingdom, his kingdom of healing and restoration so that we can experience everlasting life, so that we can experience complete and total healing. That's his mission. It wasn't to come and just make good people better. That's not it at all. He he wasn't just a good teacher. That wasn't his purpose, though he was a good teacher. That was not it. And so how does Jesus bring everlasting and total healing? By knocking down gates and destroying everyone and everything who stands in his way? Is he like all the kings in history who just come in barging in? It's like, you better, you better bow the knee or it's your head. Is that what he does? No. It's actually the total opposite. The first will be last. The last will be first. His kingdom conquers through peace, not through violence. It's remarkable. Instead of violence, aggression, and dominance, like all the other kings of history, Jesus brings his message through his words through his example, through his testimony. And the words that we receive we must under, from him, we must then understand. Which means, if we're going to understand his message, what do we got to do? Listen. We've got to listen. All right, And that doesn't just mean hearing, gentlemen. When our wives speak to us, we actually have to listen. We have to attentively pay attention and try to understand what they are saying. Amen, women, right? And, as us guys know, ladies, this isn't always such an easy thing to do. So don't jump to the conclusion so quickly and think you've all just done this. Because here's the reality. How many people here have spent a large portion of their life saying, yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I said a prayer once. I did that thing. Yeah. I had this big experience. Let me tell you about this. Boy, was it emotional. And then later you came to find out what? You had a hard-soiled heart the entire time. You didn't realize it until later. You saw that truth over and over and over, but then one day you saw that truth, didn't you? It came alive to you. As one preacher I read, I like the illustration, he said it grabbed you by the throat. It's a totally different thing. So don't be too quick to rush and say, oh, that's not me. It might be. If we've only heard but never listened, then we will have not received the implanted word Maybe you grew up in the church and you think you've heard it all before. Yeah, I've heard that a million times. Come on, you can't tell me nothing, nothing new in the Bible. I realize Jesus died for my sins and rose on the third day. I know what Easter is. I celebrate that in Christmas every year. I know what you're talking about. Now, you need to hear me when I tell you this because this is what Jesus is saying. If that's all Christianity is for you, if it's a, something where you say, sure, why not? I'll add Jesus to my life. And hear me when, you, when I say this, then you're not a Christian. You're not born again. And I say that because that's what Jesus is saying, okay? These are, if you don't like my message, take it up with Jesus, all right? I'm just telling you what he's saying here, all right? And the reason you're not born again, the reason you're not a Christian is because you are hard-hearted. And if you're hard-hearted, this means that there is no resurrecting life within your heart. It's still spiritually dead. And if that's the case, we are destined for an eternal hell. This is very serious stuff. With that said, then, let me ask you, what softens hard soil? Throw out an answer here. Anybody know? Water, rain. Okay, so in the same way, with this picture in mind, there is a type of water that spiritually softens our hearts. What is that water? Humility. 
Humility and meekness is a part of that, and that is the entryway to the living water Jesus provides, which softens a hardened heart. So if you want the living water that softens your heart, you have to receive it through meekness and humility. Does that make sense? Okay, that's how we have to receive it. The first step of that process of receiving Jesus' living water, which softens a hard heart, requires humility and meekness. Here's what Jesus' half-brother James says. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and do what? Receive with meekness, with humility, is what that's saying. The implanted word, hey, there's that seed, which is able to save your souls. That's it. That's Christianity in a nutshell. Repent, turn, and receive that's what it is. Now, think about this just pragmatically for a second and logically. Why would that involve meekness at all? Because when you realize how hopeless you are, how dead in your trespasses and sins you are, how far you've fallen short from God's righteous standard, and when you realize that you are so bad that the perfect and holy Son of God had to die for you, how could that not make you anything but meek? When you realize this, what happens? You can't look around pridefully at everybody else's sins and think that you're some sort of super saint who should wear a cape. No. You don't think that anymore because you realize that's not the case. You know you're a sinner who is saved, how? By sheer grace, not of works so that nobody gets the boast. The only person who gets the boast about our salvation is Christ. That's it, not us. And so, of course, if that's the case, if I'm saved by sheer grace, I don't got nothing to brag about anymore. It doesn't matter if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're a worship leader, or even if you're the pastor. You have no leg up on a single person in the room. And so that drives you to humility. But if you aren't humble, when the word of Christ hits your hard heart, do you know what's going to happen? One of two things. You're either going to think you don't need that seed, or you'll think you need it, but it only ever impacts you in a superficial, theoretical kind of a way. One of those two things are going to happen. But either way, it's never going to result in a life-changing, deeply, emotionally impactful way. Let's look at that first one, all right? The I don't need it way when you think you're not all that bad. Okay, what's this about? Well, it's this kind of thinking which says, yeah, you know what? Sure, I've made mistakes. (laughs) Be real here with me, preacher. Who doesn't? I know you do, right? We all make mistakes. No questions about it. And if that's you and that's the way you think about your sin as just mistakes, then you really don't have a clue how sinful your human heart truly is. And this is probably because you've gotten really good at hiding that, not just from yourself, but from others too. Both of you hide it from others and yourself. But make no mistake, the evil within your heart is there. It's down there lurking. You've just covered it up by turning the lights off. You've covered it up with delicious meals a day that make you not get hangry. May have experienced that? That's what that is. It's a mask to cover up what's in there. With getting enough sleep that day, with some good self-restraint, but those desires are still down there lurking within your heart, just waiting for the opportune moment. And another thing, deep down you know this. Deep down you know 
that if we all in this room could somehow glimpse into your minds and see your thoughts on any given day, you know we'd probably bar the doors and not let you back in here. And that goes for all of us, doesn't it? Deep down, you know that there is shame, there is guilt, that you've fallen short of the glorious standard of God's moral law. And even if you don't believe in God's moral law, we all have a moral law, and whatever that moral law is, it's certainly lesser than God's. God's is much higher, but you've even broken your own moral law. We all fall short. And that is not even to bring up the things that you've done that nobody knows about, that you wouldn't dare breathe a word of to anybody. Here's what the Bible says about this. It understands our condition. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what is the cost of this falling short? Well, Paul tells us a few chapters later. For the cost or the wages of sin is death. That's physical and spiritual death in hell. That's what it's talking about. And so here's the question. Do you recognize how bad that you truly are? Do you recognize the darkness that's truly in your heart? We are so bad, the Bible tells us, that here's the thing about this. Even our good works are done with sinful motives. See, we think what? We think, hey, if I do more good things plus less bad things, then God will be like, hey, good job, come on in. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. Because even our good things are sinful, filthy rags before a holy God. All right, now how about that second way? The second way we lack humility that results in a hard heart is it impacts us only in the theoretical kind of a way. We could call this the head but no heart knowledge, right? It impacts our head but never impacts our heart. And simply put, uh, th- this would be a lot like being told that you have terminal cancer and your response to that would be like, oh, well, it is unfortunate. I'm going to go golfing now. See ya. Write that down on my calendar. That, that's a problem I had today. Right? Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, nobody responds that way upon hearing that kind of bad news. And so, too, if you hear the gospel message of Jesus and it doesn't impact you beyond a mere intellectual or theoretical way, you're like that cancer patient just going about life without it ever really startling them in any way, shape, or form. You don't sign up to do chemo. You don't sign up to do radiation because you're like, you know, it'll, it'll take care of itself, I'm sure, whatever. That's what that's like. And if that's how you are, spiritually speaking, you really don't get it. And if you don't get it, if you're here, if you're hearing, your ears are hard of hearing, it's because the soil of your heart is hard-hearted, which means you do not have resurrected life within you. It's just not there. And it's not there because you don't have that understanding as you ought. Resurrecting life comes through first understanding, but secondly, through proper allegiance. Look at verse 5 and 6 with me. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. The explanation down in verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground... This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. 
With this soil, the seed lands, unlike with the hard soil, this time it actually does take some lodging in the soil and it germinates. In fact, things are looking pretty good for a while, aren't they? Yes, they are. Because look at them. They're so excited. They jumped right into that Bible study. They're reading their Bibles pretty regularly too, and they seem just thrilled about it. In fact, they're going to church and they're serving in all sorts of ministries. And they even quit that besetting sin in their life for a while. But then things kind of fade back a bit, don't they? And this new life experience of theirs begins to unravel. And before you know it, you're wondering, hey, where was, where's the evidence of spiritual life at all in this person? They're not growing. They're not being nourished by the word. In fact, if I look at them now compared to before, they look just like they did before. They look pretty spiritually dead is what they look like. And the reason they look pretty spiritually dead is because they are dead. There's no spiritual life in them. And why? Because they listened to the word and they received it. How? With a shallow heart. Sure, that Christian camp really did bring them to tears when they went forward and walked that aisle under such emotional conviction. And man, that message really spoke to them, didn't it? Sure, that Christian concert was so powerful and moving when they dimmed the lights and the smoke machines went up at just the right time and it was just perfect. They felt God's presence. Man, it changed them for a while. That's all it was. It was emotions. It was feelings. And when those feelings and emotions left, so did any resemblance of the spiritual life within them. It was gone. Do you realize now why Jesus warned so many times in his teaching to count the cost. The Son of Man has no house or, house or home, not even a place to lay his head, he warned. And he said this because the implication was, hey, you follow me, you might not fare any better. So you got to count the cost. You have to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, as Paul tells us. And they say all this because of what Jesus said back in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Doesn't sound like a very comfortable thing, does it? Sheep among wolves? No. So be wise in serpents and innocents as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in the synagogues. That's not a good time. That's not a massage. That's painful. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. It's, it's crystal clear. A part of the gospel plan is suffering. It comes with the package. And if you think otherwise... You haven't received the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. We are signing up for suffering when we follow Jesus, which is why Paul says in Romans 8, and Paul went through it, he says, we will share in Christ's glory, provided that we share in his suffering. They go together. So this common cultural Christian idea that says God loves you and has a perfect and happy plan for your life is nothing but hot garbage from the pits of hell. It's not true. And all that is, is Satan's attempt of snatching away the word which was sown and leading you on to believing lies. And if you listen to it, 
it will be snatched away. And once that emotional experience fades, so will any hope of receiving that word and having it implanted into your soul. So if that's you, hear the warning of Jesus in verse 12. What, and what does he say here, right in the middle of this whole passage? He says, you better pay attention to this because you can't just do cruise control on this stuff. When you hear the word and you reject it, there is a point where God pulls that back and leaves you in your lostness. So we can't, he who has little, it'll be taken from them. He who has some, more will be given. What's it talking about? If we respond properly to the light God gives us, he gives us more light. And praise God, he does. And many of us have experienced that. But if we do not accept the light he has given, what does it say it happens? He takes it. And we are in a worse state than before. It's like we looked last week in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus talks about, he says, you know, he compares Israel, I believe in Israel. He says, you're like the demon-possessed man. When the demon was kicked out, things were nice. They got cleaned up. The life improved. But the house was empty. It was not filled with the Spirit of God. And so what happened? That demon goes out and gets seven more demons and comes back, and the person is a worse creature of hell than they were beforehand, in a much worse state. And so we must not become hard-hearted to God's gospel seed. To follow Christ is to follow Christ not because he makes you feel good. It's to follow him simply because he is good. That's a big difference. And in his perfect goodness, he uses even evil and suffering for his sons and daughters good. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. Not for everybody, for those who love God. That's a stipulation there. So do you believe that? Or, when the sun of persecution, hardship, and suffering rises up, does that seed burn up then too? When your loved one dies, does your heart scream wanting to curse God and die? Where were you, God? When that dangerous diagnosis arrives, do you say to yourself, what good is it following Jesus anyways if this is how he treats his disciples? If so, friend, look at your heart, for those are the pulsating rhythms of shallow soil. Maybe for you it's not persecution and suffering. Maybe for you it's something else, the temptations of this world. If that's you, then your heart might not be shallow-hearted, but it actually might be the third case, which is half-hearted. As the soil of your heart has been crowded out by thorns and thistles, of this world, as Jesus describes in verse 7. That's what he says. Other seed fell among thorns, and thorns grew up and choked them. And for the explanation now in verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But what happens? The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word out, and it proves unfruitful. Can I just say, if this is you this morning, Take no comfort at all in thinking these verses provide you any sort of comfort, because they don't. They absolutely don't. Why? Because as Jesus says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't have one foot in, one foot out. That's to have two feet out. It's two feet in or two feet out. That's the only options here. Oh, good thing. I don't serve money. I actually don't make very much of it. No big deal. Is that you? Well, hold up a second here because sure, you might not be living for money, but that's not the only idol in town. There's a whole bunch of other options that we can lust after. 
Money isn't the only thorn and thistle that will choke out the seed. Maybe for you, the soil of your heart is divided between Christ and your career. Oh, come on, preacher. Everybody's got to work. You know, like we can't just live in la-la land and not have a job. Some would argue with that. But uh, who said, though, that thorns and thistles were only bad things? Certainly can't thorns and thistles that crowd out the implanted word, can't they be good things? That's what an idol is. An idol cannot, isn't just bad things. <clears throat> Excuse me. It isn't just bad things, but it's also good things. An idol isn't just a little statue of a half-man bird. Okay? There's a whole bunch of other things that can be idolatrous. It could be your career. <clears throat> it can be that special love interest. Maybe it's a spouse, a child, or even that hobby that just consumes your thinking and your time and your energy. <clears throat> Whatever it is, because that good thing has moved from simply being a good thing to an ultimate thing in your life that occupies the soil of your heart, it has prevented you from being able to receive the implanted word which is able to save your soul, which is exactly why, consequently, if you really pull back the covers and look at your life, it's so full of sin. And why? Because that's what happens when you invite thorns and thistles into your heart. They grow. They reproduce. All right? And when they grow, what do thorns and thistles do? <clears throat> they cause harm. You ever tried to pick up a thorn and thistle, or even just a rose, and grip it tightly? You got blood on your hands. Okay? You say, ouch. But if your heart is half-hearted, that's exactly what's happening in your life, though. <clears throat> because you've made romance an idol, what are you doing? You're abusing your sexuality in ways that you know God forbids. Because you've made your intellect into an idol, you freak out and when anyone ever questions it. Because you've made peace your idol, you never speak the truth in love because your false peace is the idol of your heart. Because you've made your time an idol, serving Christ, which comes strictly and primarily how? Through serving in his church, which is his body, is something you'll eventually get around to, but just not yet, because you're just too busy. Now, I just got to give you a little clarification here. I'm not trying to guilt you all into doing more and being better, okay? Moralism is a nasty, nasty drug, and that will not fare you any better. The point here I'm making is simple. There's a million ways that we can try to divide the soil of our hearts into Jesus and things, okay? And all of them, every single one of them is destructive. It's just as destructive if you, as if you wrapped your own physical heart with thorns and thistles around it and tried to go run a marathon. It's not going to work. It is extremely destructive. In verse 22, what does Jesus say the divided heart would prove to be? As for what was sown among the thorns... This is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches <coughs> choke out the word, and it proves what? What's the word? Unfruitful. <coughs> Excuse me, I think I swallowed a thorn. And what did Jesus tell us earlier about that unfruitfulness? Well, back in chapter 12, he said, By a tree's fruit... You will know them. 
which is the same thing he actually said back in chapter 7. Look at this. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Is your, fruit, is your life fruitless because your heart is hard? That's the first soil. Is it fruitless because your heart is shallow? It's just superficial faith. You never really actually understood the message of Christianity nor received it. How about because your heart is divided between Christ and the things of this world? Whichever one it is, hear the words of Christ. And what are those words? He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit, what is the result? It's cut down and thrown into the fire. That's what he says right there. It's a fire of judgment. Therefore, you will recognize the good tree from the bad tree by their fruits. And so, if your life has shown mere intellectual fruit, If your life has shown mere emotional fruit that appears for a moment and then vanishes after things get hard and you realize Christianity has a whole lot of work involved to it, right? It doesn't just flow naturally. We have to fight. We have to kill our sin. Or if your life has shown divided fruit that is plagued with thorns and thistles, whatever one it is, here's Jesus' conclusion. You're fruitless because you're a dead tree. And if you are a dead tree... That means you are dead in your trespasses and sins. So if that's you, then listen. Hear, receive the implanted word of Christ, which is able to bring you from death to life, which brings us to our final point. Resurrecting life comes through understanding, allegiance, and finally, this resurrecting life comes through death, ironically. Look at verse 23. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, how much? A hundredfold. In another case, sixtyfold. And in another, thirtyfold. You know, when Peiang began to plant the forest, do you remember what we said was one of the greatest challenges that he faced in accomplishing his mission? Just getting the seed to plant it. For without it, without that seed, nothing would ever grow. Not in a million years. It wouldn't have mattered how much paying would have tilled the land. It wouldn't have mattered how much he watered the land, nor would have mattered how much sun it got. Unless he had seed, his task was impossible. It never would have happened. See where we're going here. Some of y'all have been trying to grow eternal life through your good works. Going to church, praying maybe, or what our culture likes to do mostly, just being a nice person. You know what that is? Totally backwards. It's a whole lot of works without any seed. That's not how it works. That's not how it works because the power of life doesn't come from tilling the soil. It doesn't come from the It comes from the seed. That's where it comes from. And what gives the seed power isn't those external things around it. It's Christ's power that gives it that power. And how does Christ give that seed power? Resurrection Sunday. 
Easter. It's the very reason we're celebrating Easter today. That's what we're here to celebrate. We are celebrating the life-giving power of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, which is the only power that is able to bring death to life. And so without that power, nothing that is dead will ever grow in even a million years of religious obedience, of a moralistic life, and even saying you're sorry to God. None of it will do any good. So the question is, do you have that power at work within you? And how do you know that? Is it producing the gospel fruit that Jesus talks about? In that effort, trying to make fruit without seed ain't going to get you very far. But if you have the seed, are you seeing the effects of it in your life? All hearts that have that power, Jesus tells us, will produce fruit. Not all the same. Some will produce 100, some will produce 60, and some will produce 30. But you know what he doesn't say? Some will produce zero. By your fruit, you will know them. And any tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and cast into the fire. Not because they didn't try hard enough, but because the seed never planted into their life. So we must allow the seed of the gospel of Jesus to implant into our life, which brings new life into us with abundant growth into everlasting life. And that everlasting life is coming to us so very soon. So very soon. Life is but a vapor that appears for a moment and poof, it's gone. So I ask you this morning, does your heart feel cold and intellectual towards Jesus? Does your heart feel shallow? And do life's struggles cause you to doubt God's love and his goodness? Are there thorns and thistles all over and you don't even know where to begin? Do you hear all this today and feel unworthy? Good. Because you should. Because as we started with, what's the first step into this process? Humility. Meekness. Recognizing that there is only one who is worthy. There is only one who can bring new life, and it's because he is the resurrection and the life. And he offers the seed of this resurrecting life to us freely and fully by grace through faith in his precious name. We trust in his perfect life that he lived, and we turn to him and say, I can't do this, I need you. And he says, here you go, have my righteousness. Wrap it around yourself. That's what this is. Have you listened or just heard? Have you received it? He who has ears to hear, let him hear and receive the resurrecting life that comes through our resurrected king. And it comes because the grave is not empty, for death could not hold him. He is alive. So the question is, is that same life operating within you? I trust and pray that by God's grace it is. Father, we come before you today. We just thank you for the revelation of truth that you've given us in your perfect word. So Father, I pray for the one today who might be one of the first three soils, the hard heart, who maybe has only heard the truth, but it's never actually changed their life. Pray that they would come to new life. Father, I pray for the one who is shallow-hearted, 
Maybe at one point in their life they can say, yeah, it looked pretty good, and I, I really did walk with Christ for that time, but it's been so long. Pray for them, Father, that they would re- recognize the shallow state of their heart. And I also pray for the one, Father, who is divided in heart, who living for you is an afterthought, who the things of this world are their true God, and that's what they serve and live for. I pray that they would recognize that you cannot serve two masters, for you will hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve both God and things. So, Father, we just pray for those three states, those three soils. Father, we also pray for the fourth soil, which is the regenerate heart, who has everlasting life within them. We pray that we would not become haughty, that we would not become puffed up, and that we would not become complacent. So, Father, we just pray that by your grace, through the power that you give us, that we would live victorious lives as we go forth and proclaim the grave is empty, for he is risen. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. as we sing our closing song.